creation There at the start Before the beginning of time With no point of reference You spoke to the dark And flushed out the wonder of As you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born in the vapor of your breath, the planets fall. If the stars were made to worship so light, I can see your heart. In everything you made Every burning star A signal fire of grace If creation sings Your praises so blind The scripture reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians 7 2 to 16. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a, a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to your repentance." For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leads no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, What readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter, so even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this we are encouraged, in addition to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. 
But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you are all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. This ends the reading. I feel the need to pray one more time, and it's probably just for myself. Uh, I'm going to use a prayer that one of my seminary professors used as a way to center us on Scripture and prepare us for what we are about to hear. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort from your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Emotions are weird. You throw up the egg picture for me. I think we can have a difficult time with our emotions. We don't know what to do with them all the time. And even if we call somebody emotion, like you're being emotional, there's a tinge of like negativity to that. Like we want them to like stop being so emotional. Like you're making me uncomfortable. We're told not to trust or to be driven by our emotions because it may lead us to places that we shouldn't go or don't want to go. And I'm, if you've gotten to know me so far, I'm not a person who often wears my emotions on my sleeve. I don't outwardly express emotion much. I even had this weird time in high school where I felt like if I just didn't show emotion at all, like that'd be the coolest thing. That didn't last very long. And this, for me, not wearing my heart on my sleeve, not being emotional, is, is a bit of a mixed bag. Sometimes people like it because I can be pretty steady, even keel in a situation, not get too far on either side of either being too angry or too sad or upset, and can help people kind of navigate situations well. It can be frustrating at other times, though, because sometimes I'm not bringing enough emotion to a situation. Maybe people feel like I should be getting more upset, or I should be more happy about that gift I was just given, or maybe I should be more sad about this situation and and cry a little bit more because I really need to grieve what's happening in my life, and often, sadly, I choose to avoid it. I think God gave us these emotions for a reason, like they're a part of us, they're in us. Emotions can tell us about what's going on inside of us. They can tell us about what's going on in people around us as we see people expressing their emotions to us. And we don't need to let our emotions drive us. It's not what I'm getting at, but they are signals. They are images and things that we can respond to. And even just reading through this passage as it was just read, I think Paul is being a little bit emotional here. There's a lot of emotionally charged words. And for us, often I think of Paul as kind of a number one Christian, like the prime Christian we're supposed to follow after Jesus himself, right? 
And we might think of him as this stoic teacher, just writing these letters, teaching everybody. But if you read in this passage, like, Paul's bearing his heart for this Corinthian church. He's laying it out there for them, I think. If you read through it, he says such things as, you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. Paul's expressing his deep love for this church. He talks about his deep sorrow, his ardent concern. He uses words like regret, hurt, happy, earnestness, eagerness, indignation, alarm, readiness to see justice done, delighted, boasted, embarrassed, affection, confidence. All of these feelings and emotion that Paul is trying to stir in the Corinthians that he's expressing about himself. It feels like Paul's laying it all out for the Corinthian church community. In this passage, he does not come off as aloof, stoic, like a Vulcan commander Spock, just not having any emotions and not letting anybody see what's really going on inside. Which I think would have been what many of the Corinthian culture thought a leader should look like. The Stoic philosophers at a time, at the time, talked about how important it was to not show emotions and just to let things roll off your back and take the world as it comes at you and not be driven by emotions. I think as we read through this, we can be encouraged by Paul laying it all out here. Because this is an essential part, I think, of our Christian walk that Paul is putting on display. What I think Paul is helping demonstrate for the Corinthians, first of all, but for us as we get to read some mail here, is what I would like to express in the main point, and hopefully you get to walk away with this today. That a church alive, in this series we've been going through, a church alive makes room for one another through vulnerability that allows for reconciliation and that will create deeper connections. There's some tough words in there. A church alive makes room for one another through vulnerability that allows for reconciliation and creates deeper connections. So first of all, vulnerability. Along with emotions, I think vulnerability can be one of those like, uh, words for us. Like, we don't like being in vulnerable spaces. Who really wants to be there? There's this uh, researcher and author that's been very popular in our house. Her name is Brene Brown. Is anybody familiar here with Brene Brown? Any? Great. I get to introduce you all to some of to her today. So she's a researcher and an author. She's written a bunch of books. And she, the thing that started off her research is she wanted to figure out what it meant to live a wholehearted life. What gave people purpose? What helped to create connections in people that allowed them to live a life that was deep and that was full. And she found that one of the essentials to living a wholehearted life was this idea of vulnerability. Now, I don't just want to rehash what she said. So I brought a two-minute video for you to watch where she is explaining it for you. So it's two minutes. Buckle up a little bit. But this is Brene Brown explaining being wholehearted and being vulnerable. And so here's what I found. What they had in common was a sense of courage. And I want to separate courage and bravery for you for a minute. Courage, the original definition of courage, when it first came into the English language, it's from the Latin word cur, 
meaning heart, and the original definition was to tell the story of who you are with your whole heart. And so these folks had, very simply, the courage to be imperfect. They had the compassion to be kind to themselves first and then to others, because as it turns out, we can't practice compassion with other people if we can't treat ourselves kindly. And the last was they had connection, and this was the hard part, as a result of authenticity. They were willing to let go of who they thought they should be in order to be who they were, which is you have to absolutely do that for connection. The other thing that they had in common was this. They fully embraced vulnerability. They believed that what made them vulnerable made them beautiful. They didn't talk about vulnerability being comfortable, nor did they really talk about it being excruciating, as I had heard earlier in the shame interviewing. They just talked about it being necessary. They talked about the willingness to say, I love you first. The willingness to do something where there are no guarantees. The willingness to breathe through waiting for the doctor to call after your mammogram. The willing to invest in a relationship that may or may not work out. They thought this was fundamental. She said, vulnerability isn't comfortable, but it's necessary. And that it's the willingness to do something when there are no guarantees. The willingness to invest in a relationship that may or may not work out. And I think that's what's on display in Paul as he's talking to these Corinthians, is that he desperately wants this relationship between him and that church to be fruitful, to mean something. But he knows that there's a chance that it might not work. They could be swayed. They could go another direction. But as the leader and pastor of that church, he desperately wants to be open with them. He wants to share with them. He's being vulnerable. And I think we see him stepping into this vulnerability through some of the words. He opens up by saying, I take great pride in you. Have you ever taken or told somebody that you take great pride in them when you're not sure which direction they might go? You have to be either fully confident that they're going to go the way you want to or you're stepping into a space of vulnerability and saying, I take great pride in you because I want you to do better. He's laying himself out for the Corinthians. He doesn't want his pride in them to be misplaced. He has belief in them, but deep down there's an opening to be let down and to be discouraged. He shows the compassion that she talks about. He says, we have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. Paul cares deeply for this people, and he has cared for them over the time that he's been in relationship with them. He hasn't taken advantage of them, like many powerful leaders at the time probably tried to do, and many powerful leaders today still try to do. He demonstrates his connection with them by opening, he says, make room for us in your hearts. And a few verses later, he says, I have said before you that we, you have such a place in our hearts. He wants their hearts to be open to him as much as he has opened their hearts 
to them. He's been open with the Corinthians so that they have, so there's a space for each other to connect in that. If we as a church are really honestly going to start down this path of being a church that is alive, we must make space for one another. We must open our hearts to one another. We must make room for each other in our hearts. Sure, we might get hurt. Somebody's probably will let us down. If I haven't done it already, I will. And now I'm honestly, I'm not talking about somebody needing to take abuse or to be taken advantage of for the sake of just being vulnerable all the time. There has to be mutuality. If I'm going to be vulnerable and open, you need to be vulnerable and open with me. The way to have these truly deep heart-to-heart connections is to be open with each other. And this isn't a you-go-first kind of game. Like, I'm just going to wait to be vulnerable until you're going to be vulnerable. Just, I'll just wait. No, somebody needs to take the first step. I have to start. We have to start. We should follow the example of Paul who valued his relationship enough with the Corinthians to bear his heart with them. And ultimately, I think Paul is following the example of Jesus here. Jesus made himself vulnerable for our sakes. Philippians 2, one of my favorite passages of Scripture says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider him equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself. Some translations say he made himself nothing. That was for our sake. Jesus let go of all the rights and opportunities that he had for our sake. Jesus became vulnerable for our sake. And I think that's what Paul is displaying here in the Corinthians, that he is displaying the character of Jesus. Being vulnerable with one another then opens up opportunities for reconciliation, which is the next section we're going to look at here. As you move through the passage, Titus, who Paul has sent as an emissary, returns with a positive report. Paul had sent Titus with this letter to the Corinthians, hoping that there would be a good response to what he had shared. But Paul's wrestling with, are they responding responding well or not? I don't know. I haven't heard from Titus. Titus is taking too long to come back. You know you have that moment when you talk to somebody and you share with them something difficult and Maybe you don't hear from them for a day or two. And you wonder, like, are we still friends? Do they still like me? That's what Paul is wrestling with. But ultimately, because of his vulnerability and being open, there is the reconciliation that happens. The report that Titus returned says, He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, and that my joy was greater than ever. When Titus returns with the happy report, Paul's joy is greater than ever because the relationship has been restored. Paul was vulnerable with the Corinthians, and that opened up space for reconciliation between the two of them, between Paul and the church. I had this one aunt in my life, Aunt Jackie, on my mom's side. She was kind of the black sheep of the family on my mom's side. She was always running off, not doing great things, not making great choices. She was in and out of our family life. Sometimes she'd come 
visit us. Sometimes she'd come stay with us, but usually when she left, it was on negative terms with my mom. There was deep emotional abuse issues with her, even substance abuse issues with her, lots of anger and disconnection over the years, and I could see it in my mom's face any time that she thought about her or even time she connected with her. But I remember one day very vividly when my mom got a phone call saying that Aunt Jackie probably didn't have much longer to live in this world. That she'd become sick, she had cancer, and she was going to pass very soon. And even amidst all of that hardness and wrongdoing and things that had happened over the period of my mom and Aunt Jackie's relationship, my mom bought a flight that day and flew to be by her side. Because she knew that she needed to be with her sister. And that regardless of all of the negativity and things that had happened in their, la- in their life, she saw this as an opportunity for reconciliation. My mom sat by her side, helped give her showers, helped take care of her. And I believe that that led to the reconciliation between my mom and Aunt Jackie that they could not have had otherwise if my mom had not opened up the opportunity to be vulnerable with her and to go out there and to take care of her. I love the line where Paul struggles with him writing this letter that has requirements for the Corinthians that what Paul thinks they should do. He talks about his letter. He says, even if I've caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. Even in that sentence, we see Paul struggling with what he knew he needed to write and say, and how it was going to make the Corinthians feel. But he was happy that he wrote it because it allowed them to change. The letter produced something in them, and he talks about this difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow to me is sadness and sorrow that leads to a continual spiral downwards. Whenever we experience worldly sorrow, often we try to hide, we try to cover up, we justify ourselves. Maybe we go into bouts of anger and rage. Or maybe we go to the other side and become completely apathetic and don't care. And we try to avoid justice rather than see justice done like Paul talks about. We don't do what needs to be done. An example from Scripture in this is, I think, the character of Judas. Judas did something very wrong. He betrayed Jesus, turned him over to the Jewish authorities, And then when he realized he did something wrong, he saw no way out of it. He didn't see opportunity for reconciliation. He didn't see his opportunity for redemption. He just kept spiraling and spiraling down. Worldly sorrow took over his life. He felt extreme shame in seeing that he was a bad person, that he couldn't get out of it. And ultimately, we're told in Scripture that Judas hung himself because he saw no redemption for himself in the end. But the opposite that Paul talks about that we should be seeking is this godly sorrow. Sorrow or sadness that leads to repentance and reconciliation, Paul tells us. And he lists the fruits of this godly sorrow, which are the opposites of the worldly sorrow. Earnestness, that we are truthful and that we are 
forthright with what needs to be done. Eagerness to clear ourselves. We want to do whatever we need to do to reconcile the situation. Indignation. That's a fun word, but it's being upset, but not overly so. Like, I need to, I'm upset, but I need to handle this in the right way. Being alarmed. Being concerned for for what's happening. We need to do something about this. We have a longing and a desire to make a change. And ultimately, at the end, he says, readiness to do justice. Readiness to do what is right and what needs to be done. The counterexample to this from Judas is Peter. Running parallel to each other. Each of them did something wrong at about the same time. Peter cuts off the ear of one of the guards. Peter runs away and abandons Jesus. He denied Jesus, even cursing that he knew Jesus. And he goes back to be with his friends after Jesus dies on the cross. He goes back to his work. And then when he hears that Jesus has been resurrected, what does he do? He's not afraid. He runs to the tomb. And then when he's out fishing and he still hasn't seen the physical Jesus yet, in the Gospel of John, he sees Jesus on the shore. And what does he do? He doesn't run the other way. He doesn't paddle the boat faster to get to the other side of the sea. He jumps out of the boat. He runs to Jesus. And it's at that moment that he is reconciled with Jesus. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Because Peter wasn't spiraling downward in that worldly sorrow. He had the godly sorrow in him knowing that he had done something wrong, but that he wasn't beyond forgiveness. Like any of us are not beyond forgiveness. Peter felt guilty. He did something bad, but he wasn't defined by the bad that he had done. Jesus saw him differently and he knew it. And again, Paul is ultimately following the example of Jesus. Because Jesus worked to reconcile our relationships and to lead us through the godly sorrow that affects change in our lives. We've sinned, yes, but we can repent, and through Jesus we can be reconciled with God and with each other. When we follow Paul's example, when we're vulnerable and when we work towards reconciliation, there's one more thing that happens, and it's very important. And then ultimately we get to make room to create deeper connections with each other. At the end of this passage, it talks about Titus coming back. And Titus is encouraged by what he's seen. He's encouraged by what the, how the Corinthians have responded. He gets to happily run back to Paul and share the good news. Titus isn't the one that needs to be reconciled with the Corinthians here. But he's the one that gets to see it happening. See it firsthand. And Titus gets to create a deeper connection with the Corinthian church and with Paul because he's been a part of this process and he's been seeing it worked out. When we go through these kind of moments and when we get to see other people and work with other people go through moments of vulnerability and creating deeper connection, we want to do that too. People see that and they want in on it. Courtney and I had joined an infant loss support group after we had experienced a miscarriage between having Aurora and Hannah. And being a part of a support group is interesting because it always took one brave soul to start the discussion. The leader would ask a question, 
We'd all kind of sit there in awkward silence for a little while. Now, we could have sat there in silence for an hour if nobody wanted to share anything. But the moment that somebody shared something, the moment that somebody was vulnerable and opened up their hearts into that space that they knew was safe, the floodgates opened. Everybody saw an openness to share, to be vulnerable, to change what was happening in their hearts. And we all created deeper connections in that space. We still stay connected with a lot of those people who'd gone through that. Many of them have had children like we've had Hannah now, but we connected in that moment, in that time of deep pain for all of us. Paul sent Titus to carry the message, and as he was awaiting his return to hear how the Corinthian, Corinthians had responded, Titus returns and Paul is encouraged because he heard that the Corinthians responded positively. And Titus is encouraged and grows in affections for the Corinthians. And that earlier pride that Paul talks about is affirmed. Paul concludes this passage by saying, I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. I see this kind of two bookends. At the beginning, he says, I take great pride in you. And then we get to see that Paul's pride is not misplaced as we work through this passage. And at the very end, he can say, I have complete confidence in you. His confidence and connection with this Corinthian church is strengthened. And when we move through this process like Paul, from vulnerability to reconciliation to deeper connection, our connections deepen with one another, and then people around us will start to take notice. I think this is the kind of relationships people deeply want. This is what Brene Brown was talking about. When you see people living this kind of life, you're like, I want that. I want to be a part of a community that lives that way. This is the example that I think the church is supposed to be setting on this earth. This is the example that Jesus gives us. Yes, Jesus died for our sins so that we might live forever with him. But along with that, Jesus died to relieve us of our sins so that we can live open, vulnerable, restored, and deep lives with those we are in community with. Like Jesus did when he was here on earth. He walked around healing broken people restoring them to community, reconciling them to the community that they felt like they were on the outskirts of so that they could have a deeper connection. He brought disciples in who felt like they weren't worthy or they didn't belong and said, no, you come follow me and see what's going to happen. And Paul gets to follow the example of Jesus by setting them doing the same thing for the Corinthians. Jesus stands up on our behalf, seeing through the sin and the negativity in our lives and relieving us and forgiving us of that through the power of his cross and resurrection so that we can be restored and redeemed and offer that to others. And even now, as we learn through our series on, the, on Hebrews, Jesus is standing before the Father, being the great high priest on our behalf, working to reconcile us You know, the internet's funny. I think a lot of people say that the internet is just full of cute pictures of kids and cats. It's true. 
I ran across this video the other day that I thought kind of demonstrates what we're talking about. There's this one cute kitten. He comes out on a road, and the guy picks him up, and then his friends see what happens. (laughs) And they all come running out. Don't you just want to be a part of that? This is what this process I've described today, I think, looks like through kittens. That one kitten is brave enough to go out on the road to a stranger. He leads the charge, if you will. And once he sees that the guy scoops him up and is going to take care of him, once the rest of those kittens see what's going to happen, they come running. They want to be scooped up in that guy's arms, too. They want to be a part of that. When we express vulnerability like Paul expressed vulnerability, like Jesus expresses vulnerability, when we're open with each other, we can be reconciled in ways that the world could never imagine. We can create deeper connections with each other in the ways that the world couldn't even dream of. And we can be like a horde of kittens running across the road. And then hopefully as the world sees that, they can follow the example and they will be the horde of kittens running across the road. And we talk about the housing that's going in across the street here, literally across the road. And if they can see that we are a space that's open, a space that reconciles with each other, that works for redemption in the world and creates deeper connections, they may come running. And I hope that we're ready for it. So hopefully today you've seen this point that I wanted you to walk away with ultimately, that a church alive makes room for one another through vulnerability, it allows for reconciliation, and that it creates deeper connections. Amen.